Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's the 112th episode of Give the People What They Want brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Prashant, Zoe, I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Western tanks, mainly German, but also from the United States, on their way to Ukraine to prolong a war which many thought, well, perhaps should come to an end um, as fast as possible. But the entry of these tanks um, show that the appetite to continue this war continues. Although I must say, I've been wondering about the utility of tanks. You might remember that in the early days of the war, now almost a year ago, when Russian tanks crossed the Donbass region into Ukraine, uh, many of them were destroyed. Uh, I wonder about the utility of tanks. I think this was more a political argument about continued support for Ukraine than, in fact, a question about battlefield tanks. Russian forces anyway utilizing missile strikes now, not so much a ground campaign. I don't think that tanks will really be able to defend against the missiles coming overhead. Nonetheless, that conflict in Ukraine continuing. The conflict in Ukraine continuing, but we're entering the 75th year of the occupation, direct occupation of the Palestinian people by the um, by the government of Israel, 1948. Of course, the problems in Palestine predate the formation of the state of Israel, but it's the 75th anniversary this year of the founding of the state of Israel. Um, terrible violence across the last year and a bit uh, in the um, region of Palestine. Uh, terrible violence. In February of last year, 2022, the Israelis began to roll out a new operation, Operation Break the Wave. Um, this operation came uh, in retaliation, the Israelis say, but in fact, not in retaliation because the primary mover here is the occupation itself. But Break the Wave was produced by the Israelis as a way to crack down on the return of political protest inside the Palestinian occupied territories, particularly in Nablus, in Jenin, and so on. The Israelis came in with full force to break the back of that resistance and also um, by, of course, punctual attacks in Gaza. This was a little stunning for Israel that there was the return of resistance in Nablus and Jenin because it came alongside a text published by Palestinians inside the lines of 1948 Israel called the Unity Doctrine, calling for greater uh, unity amongst all Palestinians in the struggle against apartheid Israel. Very powerful statement. During Break the Wave, the Israelis have smashed uh, Palestinian social life, going in repeatedly into places like Janine and Nablus, killing uh, tens of people, including lots of children. Amongst them, the Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Akleh killed in Janine. Well, um, this week, on Friday, in Jenin and in Al-Ram, which is just north of Jerusalem. Again, Israeli forces enter in full force into the occupied territories. By the way, the term occupied territories, not my term of choice. That's a UN designation. Important to bear in mind, the United Nations designates uh, the West Bank, designates Gaza, designates East Jerusalem as part of the occupied Palestinian territory. By the way, it's erroneous when people make it plural, calling it the occupied Palestinian territories. There are no territories. There is simply the territory 
that is occupied. Um, entering into Janine, entering into Al-Ram, entering into Kalandia in Ramallah and so on. The killing of people in Janine has shocked a number of people. Nine people killed, including um, an elderly person. Ambulances blocked from getting there. Al Jazeera posted video of ambulances trying to get to the scene of the massacre blocked by Israeli troops. Important to bear in mind that Operation Break the Wave took place before Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, government came to office in December of this year. Mr. Netanyahu leads a cabinet which is principally, primarily, fully uh, you know, a, a maximalist cabinet. They want essentially what uh, Mr. Netanyahu himself called at the time of his entry into government. He himself said that the policy of his government is to the will promote and develop settlement in all parts of the land of Israel. This is their text um, in the Galilee, the Negev, the Golan, Judea and Samaria. That means by this statement, the Israeli government has said there is no such thing called the Palestinian uh, land. There is no Palestinian state. There is no occupied Palestinian territory. It is all Israel. What we saw in Janine, that massacre that took place, is part of what we must consider to be a kind of Palestinian side, the erasure of Palestinians in idea and in person uh, across the landscape of what the Israelis claim. Pretty horrendous things. There will be investigations and so on. But meanwhile, United States is in the middle of a military exercise with the Israelis um, called Juniper Bow. That exercise is going to continue. There will not be a seizure of that exercise despite the fact of a massacre. That's the situation in Jenin. Now let's move Prashant to Yemen. Another ongoing conflict. Lots of Western arms involved. What's happening in Yemen? All right, Vijay. Of course, the latest news is reported by Al Masira TV. Other sources is the fact that you know there have been more deaths in Yemen, three children, a couple of adults also, I believe, as a result of airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition. Now, it's important to remember that uh, these air, these airstrikes and these casualties come after what was a relative pause in fighting for many months. It was not a complete pause, of course. There was still some amount of fighting going on, but. Uh, the pause itself, or what was happening on the ground, was generally seen as a bit of a positive uh, sentiment for a war which has destroyed millions of lives, literally millions of lives. And, you know, there were, of course, uh, rumors and reports that there were back channel negotiations going on between the Houthis and the Saudi led coalition, uh, which was being mediated by Oman. And there was a bit of hope that this war would actually be maybe at least. It would be the beginning of it winding down. There was, of course, no chance for an immediate truce or peace. But the, the possibility of a beginning of that process that would be underway was, uh, you know, there was really a question, there was really hope for that. Now, it's maybe too early to say whether these attacks have derailed that process, probably not. But nonetheless, I think that these attacks sort of keep shining light on the fact that the war in Yemen has seen a lot of impunity for uh, international players. Uh, this, of course, began as a war between to uh, within Yemen itself. And over time, it has become a truly international war. Like you said, we begin by talking about German and US tanks going to Ukraine. But if, for instance, if you look at a recent report that has been published by uh, Oxfam, in one year, that's from 21 to 22, there were at least 87 Yemeni civilians killed by using weapons supplied by the US and the UK. And it's, of course, interesting to note that 
despite international condemnation, despite multiple reports which prove that these weapons have had a disastrous impact, the sale is continued. The US, for instance, saying that it supplies weapons for defensive purposes. Uh, you know, there have been proceedings that have been initiated in the US and the UK, but that sale has not really stopped. In fact, I think another statistics basically says that we are looking at from 2015, the UK sold $28 billion of uh, weapons worth uh, to Saudi Arabia alone. And, you know, Saudi Arabia is, of course, the leading player, the leading uh, element in this uh, war. It, it is a country which has really intensified the war with disastrous airstrikes, which have had you know, thousands of casualties. And the results, like I said, are, are there for all to see. There's 33 million people in Yemen, most of them dependent on uh, aid in some form or the other. If, for instance, if you look at the number of people who are, you know, who are in a deeply food insecure situation, that itself is about 6.1 million, if I'm not mistaken. So at least a fifth of the population. Huge number of people uh, displaced, of course. So all this, you know, together and overall the casualties are about 400,000. Uh, which itself again say, and the war has been going on since 2015. So, you know, despite uh, we see both in Palestine and in Yemen, the fact that despite all the homilies given by countries in the West, it is their own uh, weapon sales, it is their own, uh, you know, policies that have actually enabled the continuation of conflicts, which would have otherwise probably subsided many, many years ago. So, you know, while you can sort of uh, look at, take, take the truth, take a look at, you know, who's to blame to what extent, etc., etc. I think the larger picture is completely different, which is that it is this kind of international participation that has continued to keep, give this conflict, uh, keep this conflict running. It's a terrible conflict. Also, of course, the weapons, you know, the amount of money made in these wars, quite horrendous. Um, we started with Janine. We started with Israel. Israel, of course, bombed Gaza overnight. Um, we go, went to Yemen. Now, Zoe, please give us some good news in the world. We gather that something important is taking place in Buenos Aires. Some good news, please. Well, it is good news indeed. On Tuesday, uh, heads of state, uh, ministers, and diplomats met in Buenos Aires for the seventh CELAC summit. Um, this was a historic summit for many reasons. One of the main reasons was that um, during the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro, um, Brazil had withdrawn from this regional bloc. It is, of course, a community of Latin American and Caribbean states uh, founded as part of this wave, the first wave of progressive governments in the 2000s. Uh, Lula and Chavez together working for this um, space where countries in the region can come together to try to come up with joint solutions, address the problems in the region. Latin America and the Caribbean is actually one of the most unequal regions in the world. Um, many, and it has many common, uh, had many common problems. And of course, there's so much opportunity for these countries to work together um, because of shared economies, because of shared language, shared history to really be able to overcome these. And so that's why CELAC is such an important space. And of course, has to be mentioned, it's the counterweight to organization of American states, which is of course uh, US backed and uh, exclusionary, and of course tries to impose its own interests. So very, very important. And within this summit, in addition to Lula's pres presence, which was saluted by all in their, in their comments, um, other things to mention, Nicolas Maduro was originally supposed to participate um, he had to withdraw at the last minute because of right-wing threats uh, in Argentina. 
Patricia Bulbrich, who's from the uh, opposition right-wing party in Argentina, had said that he should be arrested upon arrival. Unfortunately, Alberto Fernandez in Argentina was unable to provide uh, kind of the conditions necessary for him to make the trip there. So he only participated by video. Um, but for example, Miguel Diaz-Canel of Cuba was there. A very interesting moment when he came face to face with Gabriel Boric, who of course is a progressive leader, but has said some unsavory remarks about uh, Cuba, about Nicaragua, even in, in his own statement, uh, he continued to denounce some of these progressive governments. So there were some of those tensions. We saw Xiomara Castro, the first female president of Honduras, making her debut in this international space. She used her time to, of course, remember the 12 years of struggle of the Honduran people against uh, the dictatorship, which was backed by the OAS, backed by the United States. Um, and she also uh, expressed solidarity with the Peruvian people, um, once again reiterated her support to Pedro Castillo, calling for his immediate release. This was one of the most, uh, the strongest statements in support of the Peruvian people and has actually earned her uh, the withdrawal of the Peruvian ambassador from Honduras. So, you know, it was a space of seeing a lot of uh, collaboration and a lot of dialogue, but also some of these underlying tensions in the region right now coming coming to the fore. But one of the exciting proposals that also came out of the CELAC summit and of course the bilateral meetings that were held around it was the proposal of a common currency uh, between Brazil and Argentina. Uh, this would be huge. Uh, trade between Brazil and Argentina has, has significantly dropped. Um, and with the visit of Fernando Haddad, who's the uh, finance minister in Brazil, um, <clears throat> there were several agreements to reactivate trade in many areas. This would be a huge help to Argentina, which is currently struggling a lot. And in this proposal for the joint currency, they say, why are we doing trade in dollars? This is not a currency that is familiar to either of us. We operate in the peso, we operate in the real. Why don't we have a common currency between both of us, not use a third party currency um, and actually make this more beneficial for both of us. So that was a really important um, initiative. It was saluted by other leaders in the region as well. Um, we saw Gustavo Petro, of course, um, coming in with a very strong speech. Once again, his defense of the environment has been extremely strong in the, all of the international spaces that he's visited since being elected president. So overall, a very, very interesting summit. And on the sidelines, social movements, trade unions, left political parties also held a, a social summit, a CELAC summit where Evo Morales was president, present and many important uh, leaders from across the region. They held an encounter with Venezuela. So really breathing life into this regional platform. Um, it becomes more and more important as the OAS becomes less and less important. So I think that's a definitely a positive sign that we saw. Well, while this was happening in Buenos Aires, the U.S. Pentagon was putting pressure on Latin American states through Southcom or U.S. Southern Command Chief General Laura Richardson. Uh, she made a plea to um, a number of so South American countries, especially Peru, to send weapons to Ukraine. Uh, that was an interesting development. Not only has the United States pressured Germany and so on to send weapons to Ukraine, but they are trying to use weapons to Ukraine as a way uh, to get their own kind of politics in uh, Latin America. I think this is interesting that rather than engage the substantive issues that were on the table in say like trade, development, currency used to denominate trade and so on, um, the United States said send weapons to Ukraine. I mean, it's extraordinary the kind of world we live in. Your way, give the people what they want. 
coming to you from people's dispatch zoe and prashant i'm vijay from globe trotter um, zoe you know the washington post has an amazing database of police shootings it's pretty incredible they've tracked almost 9000 shootings uh, since 2015 last year 2022 their number is that there was 1113 people shot to death by the us police that's you know about almost 3 a day that's a lot of police shootings for a country that's incredible uh, what's happening with police shootings and police brutality in the united states Well once again the US is on the brink of a large uprising because of increased police violence I mean it's it's really incredible that just 3 years almost uh, maybe 2 and a half years since the uprising against the the killing of George Floyd this trend continues and even more intensely and so this week uh, in the past uh, week and a half a forest defender in Atlanta was was killed by police uh, this is in the context of a uh, persistent resistance against the creation of what activists have deemed cop city which is essentially to build a police training ground on a large section of Atlanta forest um and this is crucial because uh this training ground would see officers flown in to do training on how to repress uprisings um the latest technologies in repression um and all uh within this kind of protected area and in this context there's been a very intense uh, resistance from the forest defenders and one of these was killed by police uh while they were raiding their camp um on the other hand in memphis uh there was also a young black man who was beat to death by five police officers today around 6 p.m. the the footage is going to be released and it was a shocking development in this case because As we know in the United States 98% of cases of police killings of black people are not prosecuted. Um usually the officers get off, maybe maybe in worst case scenario they might get fired, they might get paid vacation. There's really a, a slew of opportunity of things that happen to them besides jail time, besides sentences, um and other such actual uh measures of justice. So, uh in this case the five officers have been indicted for second degree murder. and it is uh there's a lot of different theories about why this might happen in the case of the um 28 year old Tyre Nichols who was beat to death by these cops in Memphis some say it's because the five officers who beat him to death are black this is of course has to be has to be recognized has to be mentioned um also there's been a lot of talk already from authorities who have seen the footage of him being beaten there is because of all these uprisings that have happened officers now wear body cams and sadly it actually hasn't really seen a decrease in um police violence against people but it does mean that there is recorded evidence of what happens this footage is going to be released tonight um and from what authorities have said it is extremely brutal is extremely violent hard to watch um so they're expecting that there's going to be mass protests once people are able to see this footage and see the real brutality that this person faced because of a traffic violation he was stopped at a traffic light so this is of course a recurring trend in US history anytime there's these incidents of extreme brutality against black people by police there's usually a response in the streets people demanding that there be justice that there be structural change of course the George Floyd uprisings were some of the largest which saw over 15 million people in the streets and now two and a half years later 
<clears throat> they're funding Cop City, with this is huge corporations funding this. Uh, there doesn't seem to be actually a, a structural response to the demands of the people. And so I think that's really, really angered people. Well, we're going to move from police violence in the United States, which has been a problem for a long period of time, um, inclusive of the question of, of the country awash with guns. There was a shooting in California again, another mass shooting and so on, a country awash with guns. We're going to move from that to the small country of Swaziland in Southern Africa, where a friend of ours has been uh, very brutally killed. Uh, and I'm talking about Tolani Maseko. Um, Prashant, at People's Dispatch, uh, Pavan Kulkarni has a very nice uh, piece remembering the life and, 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 and work of Tolani Maseko. Uh, tell us a little bit about Tolani Maseko and, and the killing itself. Right. Uh, of course, Tulani Maseko, an intrepid human rights defender, a lawyer, an activist, a political activist as well, uh, was killed on the 21st of January. Now, shot dead by unknown uh, gunmen is what the report says, of course. Now, it's important to note that just a few hours before he was killed, King Maswati III, who's the ruler of Swaziland, you know, the last absolute monarch in the continent, delivered a, what can be only called a very venomous speech. Uh, you know, talking about protesters, talking about human rights defenders. I believe he called them mentally disturbed people. He basically pretty much said that they deserved the violence that uh, they faced. And just a few hours after this, uh, you know, extremely aggressive and extremely, uh, you know, uh, brutal speech, we see that uh, Tulani Maseko was shot dead by uh, gunmen. And this, this comes at a time when there have been many reports that the regime has been employing mercenaries to target those who are uh, against, uh, you know, are protesting against the regime. Now, uh, the article, like you said, has does a great job of describing his life. Someone who, for many many years, has consistently both uh, on uh, both in the court and on the streets been part of protests. Has challenged some of the most, uh, you know, draconian laws that the Swaziland government has, including loss to with terrorism, loss to with sedition. He himself has faced many of these laws, faced charges of contempt of court for talking, uh, you know, for saying something about a judge, which was proved a few years later, the judge was dismissed himself. So, uh, you know, as, and also as a political activist, somebody who brought together a wide variety of organizations. In fact, he was the chairman of what is called the multi-stakeholder forum. And, uh, you know, it is basically a coalition of civil society organizations, or political parties and all that who sort of brought together the struggle against uh, Maswati III. And it's also, I think, important to note, of course, that this is one of, uh, this is a struggle that has only intensified over the past uh, two years or so. We have been reporting on it consistently. In 2021 and 22, we saw protests taking place, especially in 21, protests which actually forced the king to leave the country, uh, protests expanding to the, uh, you know, villages themselves which were earlier considered more pro-monarch so to speak and of course industrial workers trade unions taking very strongly uh, to the streets and uh, the kind of activism that people like maseko uh, brought to the you know brought to this at this moment was very key because it was the kind of activism that uh, brought a variety of interests together we have an interview coming up soon with the president of uh, pudemo one of the most important party, uh, parties in swaziland where he talks about these issues, the fact that there is an attempt to move beyond 
you know, there, there is a, already there is a vision that is being built among the opposition for what Swaziland should look like once the, you know, the, the, the brutality of the monarchy is over. So uh, at this time, it's, you know, a person like Maseko would definitely have played a very important role and it's a huge loss. And he was not just an activist in Swaziland, he was involved in a variety of countries as, as an observer, as somebody who chronicled human rights abuses. If you look at the tributes that are coming from South Africa, from other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, you understand the fact that he was somebody who was held in high respect by activists and political, you know, by members of political parties across uh, the whole continent. So definitely a, a huge tragedy, a huge tragedy, but, uh, you know, which I think uh, poses a question to also some of the neighbors, what is called the SADC, for instance, many of the countries which have pretty much backed Maswati III in his policies. That you know, how long are they going to sort of keep giving uh, this very brutal monarch a uh, free uh, blank check, so to speak? How how long are they going to give him a free hand to continue repressing protests, to continue cracking down on students, on trade union activists, on anybody who speaks for democracy? So definitely a very sad day, sad day and sad week for the people of Swaziland and for people who care for justice and rights and democracy in the whole of Africa. It's a powerful story, Prashant, and we're going to keep to it. I mean, you know, at the same time as we report the news, we also lift up voices of people like Tulani Maseko. And, and so here it is, you know, an important person might not have been a journalist, but he did provide uh, an assessment of how things were in Swaziland. Um, the African continent, the scene of a number of important trips uh, in January of 2023 already. The Chinese foreign minister, new foreign minister, Ching Ang, who used to be China's ambassador to the United States, visited Ethiopia, Gabon, Benin, Angola, and Egypt. He made a very important um, you know, speech in Addis Ababa, Angola, uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, when he opened the African Centers for Disease Control, which was you know, built with Chinese assistance. It's part of China's new Health Silk Road. Um, uh, Foreign Minister Ching Ang made a very important statement, and, and here's his statement. He says that he said that Africa should be a stage for international cooperation, not an arena for major force rivalry. It's an important statement he's made. He makes this statement just when a number of countries in Africa's Sahel region, first Mali last year and now Burkina Faso, have ejected the French military. This mood of anti-French sentiment in Northern Africa is part of the discussion here. It appears that a number of African countries, once again, cycle of being fed up with foreign uh, military bases, with foreign intervention, bullying, and so on. Uh, in a sense, uh, Foreign Minister Ching Ang's statement should be read in that context, in the context of a new feeling on the African continent that there needs to be a development agenda for the continent and not merely uh, Africa used as a battlefield for proxy wars, as it was during the high point of the Cold War. Um, new projects needed, advancement needed, collaboration needed. Well, uh, you know, Foreign Minister Ching Ang's message was not really digested very well in Washington, D.C. Just when uh, this was uh, occurring, his trip was occurring, we had news that the United States was once again going to circulate a bunch of high officials into, um, into Africa to contest the
the Chinese and Russian presence. By the way, speaking of the Russian presence, United States State Department has declared Russia's Wagner Group, which is accused of being in places like Burkina Faso, Mali, perhaps Libya and so on, including Mozambique, as being a transnational criminal organization. Um, that's part of the push coming from Washington, D.C. But the most interesting visit after Chingang was not from the State Department of the United States, but the Treasury. Um, and this was the visit by Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary. Uh, she went to a number of African countries, including South Africa, Zambia, and Senegal. Interesting countries. I'll come to Zambia in a second. Um, in South Africa, she uh, met with the Minister of Finance, Enoch Godongwana, and they talked about things like money laundering, financing of terrorism, and so on, and including sovereign debt resolution. Money laundering and um, countering of financing of terrorism caught my eye because this is the um, little mechanism the United States has been using to accuse China and to some extent Russia of um, unethical behavior on the continent, including, of course, the question of debt. Um, and I was fascinated by Yellen's comments in Senegal and in South Africa for the emptiness of their content because the United States didn't put anything on the table. U.S. government also intervened in the Zambia Democratic Republic of Congo agreement to build an electric battery. Well, now we've seen the details of the U.S. intervention and there's a paragraph where it says United States will not make any financial contribution. So there's a great emptiness coming from Washington, D.C. Zambia is interesting because just before uh, Yellen went to Zambia, Christina um, Georgieva of the IMF went there and she said that the IMF is working with Zambia to clear the debt with China. On the one hand, we have Chingang coming and saying, let's collaborate. On the other hand, we have this situation of a context being set up by the United States government. Um, tough going uh, for these powers. But I think that the African people, it seems to me, at least what they are showing in the streets of Burkina Faso and in Mali are saying is they want their own agenda. They don't want to be in anybody's cold war. They want more collaboration. Well, you've been listening to Give the People What They Want brought to you from People's Dispatch. There's Prashant, Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. See you next week. It's our 113th show. Bring on the selfies. Yeah.